Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl, and it is Thursday, May 20th. On today's show, the push and pull between offense and defense in the NBA playoffs, and what matters more. Before we get to that, our ongoing segment, Gambling Tidbits of the Day, as to why Utah should legalize sports gambling. Last night was Game 3 of the Washington Capitals versus the Boston Bruins. Great game uh, in a great series. The first two games of the series both go to overtime. And I've bet the Boston Bruins money line in both of those games. So I'm seeing this series through the prism of a Bruins fan. And on the other side are the Washington Capitals, who have Tom Wilson on their team. A very detestable hockey player who's been suspended many times and will presumably be suspended many times more. And watching him play hockey against a team that I had bet on was driving me up a wall. I'm screaming about this hit and about this shot and, and everything that you love as a hockey fan and that you despise about your opposition because you can always find players like this on the other team. It was driving me bonkers. And I'm going, Tom Wilson, get him out of here. I can't watch it anymore. This is too much for me. So the Capitals win game one, and I'm angry about it. Then the Bruins come back and win game two, both again in overtime. And I'm fired up about it. So we go into game three last night. And my analysis of the first two games is very evenly matched. If anything, the Capitals have probably outplayed the Bruins through two games. And because of that... I look at the gambling lines and I say the Capitals, ooh, plus 155 in game three to win as underdogs. Seems pretty enticing. They're getting Ilya Samsonov back in net, probably their best goalie. He's playing in game three. So I take a bye to the Capitals. Now I've switched sides, which is one of the things that sports gambling offers that's really cool. Just the ability to be really invested in one team on one night and then do the exact opposite on the next. So now I'm a Capitals fan. And I'm excusing Tom Wilson and all of his behaviors. And I'm going, listen, he's just a physical player. Don't even worry about it. He's fine. And on the other side, I'm watching the Bruins. And I'm honing in on Brad Marchand. Probably the, one of the slimiest people in hockey. He just is the stereotypical hockey pest. He can't help himself. He's trying to lick people's faces in scrums. He's poking people in the face with sticks when the refs aren't looking. He's doing all of the agitator things that one does in hockey and it's driving me up a wall and I can't take it. So now I'm freaking out about Brad Marchand who is very talented in his own right. And he's scoring a goal and I'm going, no, this can't be. I hate this. I hate it. I hate it so bad. So the game goes into overtime again, three games, three overtimes. And I'm riding that roller coaster. Uh, the Bruins, they're outplaying the Capitals greatly all through the first overtime, but they don't score a goal. Marchand, he has multiple opportunities, and I'm grabbing my head going, this can't be, he can't be the one to score, anybody but him. And we go to a second overtime. And Samsonov, who has played phenomenally up until that point, he grabs a puck behind his net and just kind of has a gaffe where he doesn't think about what he's doing, and he leaves the puck there for a defenseman that's not coming. Craig Smith comes in, grabs it, wraps it in, game over. I've lost my bet. Capitals down 2-1 in the series. I'm super bummed out about it. And Brad Marchand's there celebrating, and it really, really sticks in my craw. So again, just like yesterday, you go, Chris, why should gambling be legal in Utah? You lost another bet. You're atrocious at gambling. And, and these are all true things. But the silver lining exists, as always. So today, why should gambling be legal in Utah? Because it reminds us of something that we all need constant reminding of. That we are all, in the end, hypocrites. And we will do and say things that we didn't think we would say and do. 
even the day before. Now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Last night, the NBA playoffs truly began. And no offense to the prior playing games. I know everybody got super fired up for Pacers and Hornets and watching Cody Zeller grumble around the court. But the second part of last night's plan, the Lakers versus the Warriors. This was the official start of the NBA playoffs for someone like me. Because the skills that are needed to succeed in a playoff setting were on full display between two teams with championship pedigrees. Curry and Draymond on one side, well-versed in what it takes to win at the highest level. And LeBron and Anthony Davis and Frank Vogel coaching, like people who are well-versed in what goes into a high-pressure, intense, playoff-style basketball game. So I'm lapping it up because all of yesterday's show was about how excited I was for this game, to see the two brightest stars, Curry and LeBron, go toe-to-toe. And we knew going in that we would get those two people balling out because that's just what we expect from them. And indeed, they both do. Curry goes for 37. Uh, I think he's 12 for 23 from the field. He plays his great offensive basketball game. LeBron is struggling in the first half, looks hampered with his injury, and really turns a corner in the second half and ends up with a 20-some-odd point triple-double, dictates the pace of play in the second half. And we get a really, really enjoyable basketball game that mimics what we know playoff basketball is. This meat house grinder where the pace slows down and isolation scoring becomes key and defenses really step up to the challenge and make it very hard for an offense to find space or or really anything that they find somewhat easily in the regular season. So the first half was a full display of this playoff-style defense from one individual in particular, Draymond Green, who I have qualms with a lot of things that Draymond does, but I never question the dude on the defensive end of the basketball court because he is an all-timer in that area. He can guard people individually, as he did, as he was giving Anthony Davis absolute fits the entire first half. Uh, At one point, Davis is 3-for-15 shooting, And a lot of that was tied into the way that Draymond Green was playing him. He was physical. He refused to cede any space. And any time Davis had the ball, he was on him. He's handing him. He was hitting him. He was pushing him off his spot. He was doing all of those, when you're rooting against him, all those annoying things that Draymond does as a defender. And if you're rooting for him, all of the things that don't necessarily show up in a box score. But when you watch, you say, this is what separates Draymond from a good defender or an average defender or any of those things. This is what turns him into everything you want in a playoff defender. Draymond is that to a T. He has won championships simply by being that for the Golden State Warriors. So he's the small ball five, uh, quintessential small ball five in a league that caters towards that style of play. Switchability, 
ability to defend at the rim and close out on the perimeter. Draymond does all of those things at the highest of level. And he was everywhere in the first half. And I mean everywhere. The Warriors build up a 13-point lead on the strength of that and some well-timed Curry threes near the end of the second quarter. They go into the first half up 55-42. Lakers score 42 points, which if you're looking at that from the Warriors' point of view, you go, we have done everything we could possibly want defensively in this half. We've ratcheted up the intensity. Uh, Our switches are crisp. We know what we're doing. And we force the Lakers into a lot of positions that they don't necessarily want to be on offense. And that's what we know playoff basketball to be. There's less space. There's less comfort for offenses. And especially when you go against a playoff defender like Draymond Green, who understands all of these things, who understands how to put you in positions you're uncomfortable being in. There's a lot of value into that specific skill. So the Lakers come out in the second half. And I'm watching it going, okay, the Lakers were sluggish in the first half. They looked out of sorts. The Warriors defense forced them into a lot of that. But if you know anything about teams with championship pedigrees in the playoffs, there's always a moment that they go, okay, it's time to buckle up. And we got to go and do the things that we know we are good at. And so for the Lakers, ties into exactly what Draymond Green is good at. Defense. Championship style defense. So they come out in the third quarter. And they're flying around. And they've kind of downshifted from bigger style lineups that had Drummond playing a little bit more. And some people who were not as good defensively. Maybe Montrez Harrell. Stuff like that. They downshift into the way that they won a championship last year which is to unleash Anthony Davis and LeBron James as defenders and put three other really good perimeter defenders around them and say, go out there and feast and make the opposition uncomfortable and put them in spots they don't want to be in. And solely based upon your speed and your size, you're going to take away what that offense wants to do. You'll be at the rim, but you'll also be closing out on threes. And they'll have to take a lot of shots that maybe they don't necessarily want to take, either contested or in areas of the floor that they don't want to be. So we see that happen uh, over the course of the second half. Now the Lakers have forced eight turnovers in the third quarter. They end up forcing 15 in the second half. Uh, Wes Matthews plays an enormous role off the bench because he's one of those versatile style defenders. Alex Caruso was probably the most valuable player in the game for the Lakers. Solely upon his ability to play defense, he hit timely shots, and he made Curry work for every inch of floor that he was trying to get to. Uh, Caldwell Pope was great defensively. Kyle Kuzma was great defensively in spurts. The Lakers channeled how they won a championship last year. They said, sometimes our shots aren't going to fall. Sometimes we'll be at a point where Schroeder, LeBron, and Anthony Davis are combined two for 22 from the field, which at one point they were in that game. And we can survive that because we know that there is one thing we can always fall back on, championship-level defense. So we watch that play out over the course of this second half, and the game slows down to this grind of a pace. And the Warriors end up scoring 45 points in that half, which the Lakers look at at the end of the game, and they go, this is everything we could possibly want in a half defensively in a high-leverage game. We held the opposition to 45 points. We made Curry work. Curry scored 37 points, and if you watch the game, it was astounding that he could score that on that efficiency. Steph Curry is the only person who could ever do that because he was hitting tough threes 
He was having these blow-bys, but having to finish at the rim with these floaters over defenders. Like, it was incredible offense from Curry because of the defense that was in place. And that showed everywhere else that wasn't Curry. Uh, the biggest shot of the game is Jordan Poole in the corner because the Lakers have dictated the terms of engagement. They've said, Steph Curry, we are up three. We can't have you shooting a three to tie with 30 seconds to go. So we're going to trap. We're going to switch. And in the biggest moment of the game, we're going to put the ball in the hands of somebody that we're okay with it being in the hands of. And Jordan Poole, he's been great in his own right, but he's not a person who is used to this kind of situation, this kind of pressure. And so he has an open three in the corner to tie it with 30 seconds to go, and he misses. And I'm sure if you pull every Lakers coach and player and say, you're going to be up three, and Jordan Poole is going to be the person with the chance to tie the game, all in a heartbeat would go, okay, that's probably what our defense was forcing the other team to do. And that's how the Lakers played basketball. That's how they continue to play basketball. So playoff basketball ties into these two areas. First and foremost, this championship-style defense, this high level of intensity, and what that style of defense forces, which is isolation scoring. The biggest shot of the game is honestly kind of lucky, but it's just an incredible player making an incredible shot, as Curry put it after the game. It's LeBron hitting a 34-foot three-pointer with under a minute to go in a tie game with the shot clock winding down, and he just bangs it home, and that was the winning margin. And the biggest defensive play at the end of the game, the Warriors have the ball with two seconds to go. Curry's trying to fight through a a maze of picks. And the Lakers force him into essentially a trap situation where Anthony Davis reads the play correctly. He jumps out on Curry. He's playing him physically. They try to inbound it to him. And they force a turnover on the final play of the game. And that's it. So you've seen just in that final minute, the two things that we know always exist in the playoffs and always have. You need to play championship-level defense like Davis is doing on that final possession like the Lakers did in that second half, like Draymond was doing in the first half. And you need isolation scoring, which usually comes from the absolute stars of basketball, like we saw with LeBron on that three-point shot. So when we talk about playoff basketball, we need to look no further than last night for this is the style of play that we're always referencing. This is what it means to play playoff basketball. So the stage is set for today's conversation, the push and pull in the playoffs of offense and defense, and especially how it's always been in the NBA and if this season could possibly be different. So I want to read a quote from Brian Windhorse of ESPN. With more time between games and teams able to focus on planning for one opponent with some practice time, Scoring typically slows down. The playoffs have routinely seen declining pace, declining points, and a premium on savvy and stout defense as the pressure increases. Said Utah Jazz coach Quinn Snyder, If history holds true, when teams have an opportunity to game plan, the game slows down because people are trying to take things away. With the intensity of the playoffs, I would anticipate that happening on the same level. End quote. So Quinn Snyder, very smart dude. We all know him. And when he says something like, if history holds true, we're going to be in this situation where the pace goes down, points go down, possessions go down, and it's this grindhouse style of basketball. Quinn Snyder knows that. Quinn Snyder, one of the smartest basketball minds. He says, 
History holds true. We know exactly what to expect in the playoffs. We expect a game like last night's Warriors-Lakers. That's the conventional wisdom of the playoffs. Defense wins championships, and you pair that with isolation scoring at a less efficient pace than it is in the regular season because of how good defense is in the playoffs, and you have a championship combination. The Lakers last night, they tap into that source. And as I'm watching them, I'm thinking back to their championship run last year where there were a lot of questions going into the playoffs, uh, going into the bubble, because A, it was a very strange year, COVID, all that kind of stuff. Teams that had a layoff. The Lakers had looked sluggish in their regular season bubble games. And we didn't fully know what the playoffs were going to be like. We said, is it, it possible that offense, there's more of a premium on it? There's no fans in the crowd. Will the style of play be the same? Will the atmosphere be the same? Will that level of defensive intensity be ratcheted up in an empty gym? There were a lot of questions going into this. And as we watched the playoffs start to play out, we found ourselves in a very familiar spot because the Lakers, a team built on size and speed and length and switchability when they're at their very best and when they put their small ball lineup on the floor, they rise to the top. They play Portland in round one, and Portland's coming in off of a scorching bubble run. Dame Lillard is out of his mind. And while they're not good at defense, and the Lakers knew they could exploit that, that's a hell of an offensive basketball team. Just the combination of Lillard and C.G. McCollum, that stresses a defense in a lot of ways. And it was a five-game series, and the last four games of that, the Lakers win pretty convincingly. And their defense just boa constrictored what Portland wanted to do. They said, Lillard and McCollum, you guys are great, but you guys are smaller guards. And we know when we put out a five-man lineup that has AD at the center position and LeBron at the four and other players around them at, at the time, they tapped into, you know, Alex Crusoe as a defender, Markeith Morris started to come on, Kyle Kuzma, all that kind of stuff. We know that you guys are not going to get what you have in the regular season. And that played out. And the next round, Houston's looming, another fantastic offensive basketball team built into one of the greatest isolation scorers of his era, James Harden, who has not found that same success in the playoffs because of what I'm talking about. Because that style of defense in the playoffs, it comes really strongly at a team that says, we have one player who is in charge of creating all offense, assists, and points. And if you go up against the very best defense, like the Lakers were last year, it's going to be really hard for you to score at an efficient level, especially like you did in the regular season. And we saw that in that series, another five-game series, one that the Lakers relied heavily upon Davis at the five, Markeith Morris and LeBron, uh, and, and then two of their smaller wing defenders. And they boa constrictored what Houston was trying to do. And then the Nuggets are there, and they are on an incredible offensive pace through the Jazz series when Jamal Murray's scoring 50 every game and Jokic is going out of his mind and the Clippers series. And so now we say, well... This style of offense, it's really going to stress what the Lakers do defensively. Will they be able to hold up against a pick and roll between two of the most gifted offensive players in Murray and Jokic? And the story of that series was the same thing. It was the Lakers' defense trumping anything that the Nuggets could do on offense. And they beat the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And if you really want to get a sense of what I'm talking about when we reference playoff basketball, you need to look no further than game six of that series, the clinching game, 
the first half of that game. It's kind of back and forth for about a quarter and change. And that second quarter is about as good of defense as you will ever see a team play. LeBron and AD, two all-time defenders, were at their apex. And as a five-man unit, the Lakers understood everything that each player was doing, both on their own team and what the opposition was trying to do. And so Miami had nothing. They had no space. They had no room to breathe. And it was turnovers or contested shot on every single possession. It was kind of breathtaking to watch because very rarely do you see an NBA team be able to channel that level of defense for a full quarter. It's almost impossible. And yet the Lakers, who forged their entire identity off of this very thing, we can play defense at the very best level, that showed out in the second quarter. And they stretch out a lead that's 30 points by halftime. And they coast to a title. And we come out of those playoffs and we go... This is playoff basketball. This is how you win. And and it's a little bit weird that we thought that this could be different this year because history has always taught us one thing. Defense wins championships in the NBA. I look back over the last, let's say, 15 or so years, and I see a very similar pattern. The Golden State Warriors, who were a dynasty in their own right, the start of that dynasty was forged as much on the backs of their defense as it was on this transcendent combination of Thompson and Curry as shooters. That defense was so good and tied into Draymond playing at the five and Harrison Barnes being a switchable big defender and Andre Iguodala, a great all-time defender in his own right, being there and Clay Thompson, a great two-way defender in his own right. Those four players with Curry... They formed this unbeatable combination of, yeah, everybody celebrates our offense and looks at our three-point shooting and they freak out, but everything we do stems from our ability to smother out what the other team is doing and create transition opportunities for this chaotic three-point system to work. That's how the Warriors built their identity up. LeBron's Heat, another team that tapped into the same style and the same mindset. Because as much as we want to freak out about the offensive gifts of LeBron and Wade and Bosh, the entire identity of that team was built upon exactly what the Lakers have right now. Size, speed, length, physicality, Bosh at the five, LeBron screaming around the court, Dwayne Wade, an all-time defender, screaming around the court, and accentuating that with other defenders who were knowledgeable and understood how to play within that system. Somebody like Shane Battier, a great defender in his own right, and you put him around other incredibly gifted athletes who know how to play defense and you have a championship level defense. Kevin Garnett Celtics, an all-time defense in their own right with an all-time defender. Kevin Garnett, one of the best center defenders that we've ever had the privilege of watching. Versatile, could do pretty much anything much like Anthony Davis does in present day. That was the identity of those Celtics teams. The Spurs and Duncan built around similar ideology. One of the greatest defensive big big men in a system and a structure that knows what they're doing and takes away what you have, especially as they get Kawhi Leonard coming into the fold, who's a great, great, great defender in his own right. Ben Wallace's Pistons, they won the 2004 championship over the Lakers strictly because they understood how to play defense. You never watched a Pistons game and said, Man, this offense is really 
they're they're knocking my socks off. Rip Hamilton running off of screens or Tayshawn Prince trying to shoot jumpers in isolation. You never watched that team and thought this is a gifted offensive squad. But you watched them on defense and you understood this is very impressive. And then by the time the finals were over and they'd beaten that Lakers team in five games, something that we never would have thought was possible, you understood what it meant. That defense wins championships, that this is how playoff basketball is played. So we come into the playoffs this year, and we are kind of in a similar place to last year because there is a team, the Brooklyn Nets, that are playing out this season with a pretty simple idea in mind that if your offense is so overwhelming, then really nothing else will matter. And there are people who buy into this and there are people who, who go, nope, you can't. history always holds true and you can't win with this level of, of basketball. You can't just go all in on offense. Me, the person who is always trying to find uh, the balance between history and future, I'm very intrigued by what the Nets are doing. Because we know the history of the NBA playoffs says this can't be true. You can't rely solely upon offense. Sooner or later, you're going to have to get stops. You can't win this way. And the Nets have put together an offensive roster unlike anything we've ever seen. They've paired three of the greatest isolation scorers that I've watched. Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. And that's a bet on the opposite of what we know about playoff-style basketball. That defense wins championships. It's a bet on the idea that Unlimited offensive firepower can trump literally anything. And it's an interesting experiment because as much as we know defense wins championships, as much as all of these teams that I've talked about have shown us that, we also know that isolation scoring in the playoffs is at an absolute premium. And if you have three people who can do that at the very best level, it is very hard for a defense to plan for that, and even if they do plan for it correctly, it's incredibly hard to stop them from executing because that is high-level creation from so many spots that a defense cannot sell out to get the ball out of your hands and force the ball into this person's hands. There's not really a weak spot on the court offensively when the Nets are playing their very best lineups in crunch time. So we're now in this cat-and-mouse game of high-level defense against the best isolation offense. And you look at the Nets roster and you say, I've seen Durant do this at the very best level. He's one of, if not the best scorers we've seen since my life has, has existed. Uh, Harden, he's been one of the best in the regular season. He's been a little bit worse in the playoffs relative to that level. But still, the dude knows how to play offensive basketball. And Kyrie Irving. I read an entire thing that I wrote yesterday at the end of, of the episode talking about the 2016 NBA Finals and how that game is the defining moment of my NBA fandom because I was so invested in LeBron and winning that championship. And the biggest shot of that game and one of the biggest shots we've ever seen in NBA history is Kyrie in isolation with the shot clock going down, tie game, under a minute to go in regulation, and he puts a shake and bake on Curry, sidesteps to the right, and hits a very tough contested three that Curry plays well. He drills it, and that's the winning margin. That's the value of the isolation score. 
And that game is an interesting example because we have the two principles that we know about playoff basketball. We have the block. LeBron screaming in and pinning Andre Iguodala's layup attempt against the backboard with under two minutes to go in a tie game. And we have the isolation score, Kyrie, drilling the three to give them that margin. Those two things in unison have always provided teams with championships. And it's an interesting experiment to see, can I just have that thing? Can I just have three of the very best isolation scorers and rely upon that in the NBA playoffs? It's, it's why the value of somebody like Donovan Mitchell, my hometown team, the Utah Jazz, it's why his value is tenfold in the playoffs relative to the regular season. We've seen the Jazz survive and actually play quite admirably with Mitchell injured on the bench. And they can survive for long periods of time without him in the regular season based upon their current structure because they have Gobert uh, as this defensive pillar and they're always going to play good defense just because he's there. And they have enough scoring and creation in other areas to get by on offense. The playoffs are a different beast. And the value of somebody like Donovan Mitchell, a very gifted isolation scorer in his own right, somebody who went toe-to-toe with Murray in last year's first-round playoff series when he was scoring 50 points in multiple games. The value of a player like that in the playoffs is always more extreme than it is in the regular season. And so the Nets are going all in on that, just that idea. Let's pair isolation scores together at a level that has never been seen in NBA history. And let's see if that history is going to hold true against this offensive onslaught. So I want to read another quote from Brian Windhorse of ESPN. For the past five years, offensive output has been on the rise. But this season is wiping out the record books. To put it in perspective, last season, the Dallas Mavericks had the greatest offensive season in modern record since 1973-74, when they averaged 116.7 points per 100 possessions. That now ranks 8th all-time, as 7 teams have blazed their way past that mark this season, led by Brooklyn's 118.3. The 2021 season has been the greatest 2-point shooting season on record, 53%, the greatest 3-point shooting season on record, 36.7%, even the greatest foul shooting season on record, 77.8%, end quote. So these are astounding stats, and it seems like every single day there are new ones at our fingertips that show how different this era of basketball is relative to the past. Offense is at an all-time high, obviously. Dallas sets a single-season record for efficiency on the offensive side of the ball last year, and seven teams surpassed that mark this year. Almost incomprehensible numbers. And it's tied into what we know about teams. How they hunt the very best, most efficient shots. They say, we are going to get to the rim. We're going to shoot at the basket where we are going to have a high probability of making it. We are going to hunt free throws continually because that's a very efficient way to ensure we score. We are going to hunt three-pointers, especially open three-pointers, especially open three-pointers in the corners. Because these are all, mathematically speaking, the most efficient ways to go about scoring the basketball. So now we have seven teams setting an all-time mark in one season for efficient level of basketball per 100 possessions. That's incredible. Leading the charge, the Brooklyn Nets, who, as much as they have balled out in the regular season, 
they are specifically built for the style of basketball that the playoffs brings. Isolation scoring. So now we're at kind of a a crossroads of sorts. Because this can go one of two ways. It's either defense is not as important as it used to be in the playoffs because a team like the Nets get put together and they're so overwhelming on offense that nobody can do anything about it. The Lakers, the Sixers, the Bucks, any of these really good defensive teams, that could be true by the end of these playoffs. And everyone adjusts accordingly moving forward and says, defense will always have a place, but... We're maybe now going to go more out of our way to concentrate on getting that on our roster. Let's get as much isolation scoring at the highest level as we can. And that's the direction that the NBA is going to be moving. Or it can go the other way. The history holds true route. That in an era where offense is so important, or not so important, but in an era where offense is off the charts and so many teams are leaning into it as being Something that, hey, we'll rely on this in the regular season and whatever happens in the playoffs will happen. In a league like that, defense almost becomes more important because then in the playoffs, when the pace slows and possessions are less, the team with defense is going to reign supreme. You know, it's the idea that in the land of all offense, the the team with defense is king. It's going to be one of those two things. History tells us that the team that can make stops, that has that solid style of defense, that's going to be the team that wins the championship. And yet we have a team this year in the Nets and a lot of other gifted offensive teams in their own right that are kind of trying to buck that trend. I'm going to read one more quote from Brian Windhorse of ESPN. I don't think there's anything to suggest the offensive numbers will go down with the playoffs, said Miami Heat coach Eric Spolstra. It's been an interesting year to attempt to develop game plans and a defensive system to combat the firepower and skill level and shooting that you're facing every single night. Defenses are all relative now. Here's what Spolstra means by relative. This season, the Heat own a top 10 defense, allowing 111.2 points per 100 possessions. Ten years ago, during the 2011-12 season, they would have been dead last in defense with that number. Three years ago, during the 2017-18 season, they would have been 28th. End quote. These numbers are astounding. They really are. This is all adjusted per possession. I want people to comprehend that as I'm saying these numbers. 10 years ago, a top 10 defense, again, adjusted to a per-possession basis. A top 10 defense this year, a Heat team that we know to be really good at defense. Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, a lot of people who know what they're doing. Spolstra, fantastic coach. They're playing defense at a top 10 level, and 10 years ago, that would have been dead last. Even three years ago, with those numbers, this defense would have been 28th, right at the very bottom of the league. It speaks to this offensive revolution that is taking over basketball, that has consumed it in the regular season, but is still not fully been realized in the playoffs. And so you have the crossroads. You have the quote from Quinn Snyder talking about, if history holds true, 
This is what playoff basketball will be. Slow down, less possessions, less pace, defensive grindhouse, isolation scoring at a premium, significantly worse efficiency from offense than we see in the regular season. And on the other side, we have the Eric Spolster quote, where he goes, look, this is a very unique time in the game of basketball. And I'm not sure if offensive numbers are going to go down in the playoffs because it's just a strange year and it's hard to develop game plans to combat what we're seeing on offense. How do you create a defensive game plan to stop a team like the Brooklyn Nets that have Kyrie and Harden and Durant? How do you have a game plan that stops those people? That actually seems almost impossible. So now we arrive at the great question of this year's playoffs and the entire premise of today's show. One that even the best coaches in the game are struggling with, Spolstra and Quinn Snyder. Will this offensive explosion carry over into the playoffs or will history hold true? And defense, as it has before, reign supreme. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.